That's it! Sure! Look! It's the big W, I tell you! It's the big W! Welcome to Glop Culture, the Ricochet podcast featuring Rob Long, Jonah Goldberg, and yours truly, John Podhoritz, a compendium of opinions about politics, culture, pop culture, television, politics, scandal, pop culture, and television, not to mention movies. This show is brought to you by Audible.com, the home for audio content on the internet if you want to listen to it. Audible has it with over 100,000 titles and virtually every genre you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audiblepodcast.com slash glop. That's G-L-O-P for Goldberg Long Podhoritz. So, gentlemen. You say W. W, right? W. Hey, uh, Jonah, say it. What, how do you w. You say it? w. 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 How do you say W or I say, W? I say W. Well, that's because you're much more high-born and high-falutin. Is that what that is? Or is it than, just, than, just persnickety? Jonah. I don't know. W. I say W. W. Okay, we will now all <clears throat> remember to say W. Now, what do you put on? What do you say when you, when you uh, melt sugar? What does it become? Sure. Caramel. Excuse me? Caramel. 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 Do you say caramel? Well, I say caramel. It's, it, it, that's what that – it's spelled C-A-R-A-M-E-L, caramel. So, yeah. Yes, but, you know, some of us <laughs> are – you know, we speak English as though we're native born to it. So <laughs> Okay. All right. <laughs> just, to, just to let you know. So this is all a way of backing into the exciting topic du jour – the 10,000 scandals oh, of man. the Obama administration. Jonah, is it just a feast over there? Are you just like rolling around like uh, Scrooge McDuck and his money at this, this thing down in Washington? Hey, look, I mean, I, I won't lie. I went into a friend of mine's office at Fox and was like, you know, short of Obama waking up, urinating on the American flag, bowing to Mecca, <laughs> you know, um, the news environment could not get better for you guys. Uh, <laughs> And, um, yeah, no, look, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, I, I know we don't want to get too deep in the weeds on ratings and stuff, but MSNBC is having, yeah. it's, it's ratings low of seven years. And, uh, meanwhile, all those people who were disgusted with politics and turned off the TV after the presidential election, they're all coming back. So, you know, it's a, it's a target rich environment. The problem is everyone's writing about the same three topics it's very difficult to come up with anything new. It is weird. I got to say, it is um, Seven weeks ago, I was in production for uh, my little comedy, Sullivan and Son, which premieres in a few weeks on TBS. And the, we had a little story, a little what we call B story, which is sort of the second story sometimes we, you, know, you put in a, in a, in a show, uh, in an episode. And it was one of the characters gets audited. And this is before all the IRS stuff. So, you know, we built the set and we had the, we had our day of rehearsal and um, the set's been dressed and um, and she goes to the audit and she's kind of a funny little scene where she tries to seduce the auditor. Uh, and then and then our star uh, had an accident with his jaws, jaws wired shut. We shut down. Basically, the soundstage is closed and locked for six weeks. 
And um, and then we, he's healed, and we come right back, and we have a table reading, and we have a first run through, and when the run through's really great, and there's something weird about that scene, and we're all kind of joking around, like ha ha ha, IRS, IRS. In six weeks, things have changed, and I suddenly realized that right above, you know, it's an IRS office dressed the way an IRS office is supposed to be, and right above the auditor's desk, because there's a picture of Barack Obama, and there's a picture of the commissioner of the IRS, who is no longer there. <laughs> In the six weeks, he's been, you know, I don't know, fired or whatever, right? So. Uh, we don't know what to do. Like, there's nobody in that. Jo- so we, we decide, as a little inside joke, I don't know if it's going to stay, we simply remove the photograph from the, from the picture frame. So we start the scene, a close-up of Barack Obama, a picture of Barack Obama and a picture of an empty picture frame saying Commissioner of the IRS, and then we pull back to the, uh, you know, to the IRS office. So uh, for all of those of you who are listening, that's our little joke. I don't know if it's going to last. Um, you know, the thing, the, this episode it's probably... It's funny. I hope it lasts. Me that too. Is, I think it's kind of funny. It's a yeah. very... That's a very subtle but topical but funny way to talk about something that is clearly bids fair to be the first uh, one of these scandals to cross over into the popular culture really since Monica because, you know, obviously adultery is something that everybody knows about and auditing and the the, uh, fear and – uh, anger uh, that people feel at the IRS is uh, is very common and general, and and so here, here we, here we find ourselves. Washington arguably is much more interested, as Washington will tend to be under these circumstances, in the press scandals involving Fox News and the Associated Press. But clearly, in terms of enduring political impact, uh, the notion that the IRS is playing um, uh, political favorites and is auditing people based on their politics or using its powers to uh, impose different standards on people because of their politics resonates very, very strongly in a way that whatever is going on yeah, with yeah. reporters doesn't. Although clearly the Fox News story in particular uh, – Involving Jonas and my my friend James Rosen uh, is particularly fascinating because if you read the search warrant that was released a couple of weeks ago, you discover that before they decided to execute this search warrant, the leaker in question had basically confessed to everything, and what is missing from all of this is is a sense an understanding of why it was that they needed this search warrant in the first place if the leaker for whom all leak hunts, the subject of all leak hunts is to find the leaker. If they knew who the leaker was, what more information was it that they exactly needed to collect? And that's what's missing. That's what's not being answered. That's the peculiarity here. That's one of the reasons that there is every reason to believe somebody was on a fishing expedition against Fox News and because... Because they had this case, uh, they thought perhaps they could get more goods. What, 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 would they, what would they think they would have gotten? Well, you don't know. If you go on a fish, fishing expedition, you don't know what you get. I mean, you know, <laughs> you if, get a fish, if were, you know, if this were Jersey City and we were talking about Boss Haig of Jersey City, you would figure they would want stuff on James Rosen personally so that they could, you know, cut some kind of a deal with him or get him to do what they wanted. I actually don't think that that's the case here, but it is a very peculiar and unprecedented circumstance that 
you read something in which the reason to execute the search warrant against Rosen is that the leaker said Rosen was the one to whom he gave the information. Once they know that right. the leaker get, got get handed out the information, they know everything that yeah, they need they know, to know. They know A and B. They know they know the, uh, the 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 respondent and the correspondent, right? They know everything they need to know. Yeah, what what? Yeah, I suppose they just want to know more stuff about James Rosen and kind of what he what he what he browses for, what his browsing but, history was, what's on his but, Chrome history. But one possible answer to that question, which gets us at the um, gets us at the heart of this, is. That they were trying to build a prosecution against James Rosen, right? I mean, we don't know that that's what was going on, but we do know that they went to court and they said, "We think he's a conspirator. We think he's yeah. uh, in on it." And if you're willing to do that, and you've already got who the leaker is, then it it suggests that they were actually trying to build a criminal case against against James Rosen. And if and if that's the case, then he, you know. Uh, Eric Holder lied to Congress because um, he said he's never been part of anything having to do with preparing for a potential prosecution of a journalist. Yeah, no, right? lied to, he perjured himself under oath. The Attorney General of the United States, under in that circumstance, would have that, perjured himself under oath. Is that bad? A, you know, it all depends. <laughs> your narrative, it depends but, on what your narrative is. If yeah, you actually but, think that the person who was responsible for the enforcement of federal law probably should not commit but is this a guy felony really in front out? of Congress. Is this real? I mean, aren't, I mean, isn't this the case where, um, the, this is how I analogize it, right? Um, it's a super bad, abusive, domestic violence relationship between the press and Barack Obama. Barack Obama's the boyfriend who hits him and he hits him and he hits him and he hits him. And they're going to call, they call the cops now and the cops are there. The cops are standing there and saying, Ma'am, uh, um, is everything all right? And when push comes to shove, the press are going to say, "No, it's okay. It's it's my fault. I um I I um I burned the spaghetti sauce." And that's that. Exactly. When it really comes down to it, they're going to let holders skate. They're just gonna. They just wanted to. They, they, this is a tantrum. The 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 the, the, le, the totally in the tank. Obama press is just going to just go roll over eventually. They're well, not going to push let, it to the end. Let me push back on your analogy a little bit because the relationship <laughs> is properly. It's a perfect between, analogy. You can't push back on it. It works. The relationship is properly between the battered spouse and Obama, not Eric Holder. Eric Holder is more like oh, Michael Douglas's kid's bunny. Oh. In Fatal uh, Attraction. In Fatal Attraction. Oh. So that, that Holder may end up being boiled on the stove to send yes. a message to Obama saying, love us again, love me, yes. um, you yes. know, straight. And this so sorry. Show, this shows you how much we love you. Yeah. Um, or, or we're so sorry to have done this to you. We, we, we're so, or we, they do it, they string them up, and then they're covered with remorse. Right. And now if you could just take me to the Catskills and shag me again, right. everything will be fine. But you right. have to stop ignoring me. Yeah, don't but ignore look, me. You know, <clears throat> all, of this, yeah. all of this, I think, brings up an interesting <laughs> question that one must answer honestly or look at honestly, which is, are we in a circumstance in which the right is all exercised and outraged by the IRS scandal and by these press scandals and all of that. Um, and 
the press is upset about what's going on with uh, the press scandals, but not, you know, but isn't connecting dots and saying this is really reflective of the entirety of the Obama administration and all that. And during the Bush administration, you would have had almost entirely the opposite. You know, the left goes crazy about the the Valerie Plame leak and about the U.S. attorney, about the eight U.S. attorneys uh, getting fired and the right poo-poos it and doesn't and says this isn't about anything and this is all silly. So are we in a can can we honestly say that there is something different about these Obama scandals that justifies our expectation on the right or our belief on the right that the that liberals on the left have every reason to be as exercised about this as we are and that this is not just a partisan witch hunt and and everything isn't just coming down <clears throat> to embarrass and humiliate Obama. Well, I think you got to separate them. I mean, I, I, that's a really good point about the AP scandal. I, I don't really know. I don't really know. I think it's weird. I think I like to think that, you know, an actual what, what, what looks like kind of a bill of attainder written for a guy um, by uh, a very specific. Uh, accusation, um, uh, a warrant written for a guy who's just a reporter and in describing the activities of a person going about news gathering as criminal seems to be to cross the line. But I, I suppose that I suppose that there we there'd be flax and, and maybe I'd even be one of them saying, oh, come on, get over yourself. Um, I, I'm not sure that I mean, I, I think the, the difference is by, by degree. They made a movie about Valerie Plame and how wonderful she was. They were on the cover of Vanity Fair or something. So they were not just – it was not just that the, the, the left defended it. They, they, they made heroes out of them, and the right's not doing that. But I, I like to think that the right is consistent enough to, no matter who the president is, to say that the IRS um, needs a thorough house cleaning. Yeah, it's funny. On the IRS front, right, in some ways the best thing that could happen – from a conservative perspective, is if this doesn't reach all the way to Obama. And I'm no longer sure that it doesn't. I think that it may, in fact, lead to Obama. But, um, and more than a sort of rhetorical set-the-tone kind of thing. But we'll see. But as, as a sort of a use, useful issue... Sorry, that's my stomach. No, that's, no, that's um, my hound. <laughs> um, uh, she's barking. She's barking That's America's agreement. dog, yeah. everybody. America's hey, 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 dog. <laughs> she's barking at your paranoia. Just so everybody understands, Jonah Goldberg is in a war with Dana Perino on whether Dana's dog or Jonah's dog should be considered America's dog. And, and that's as Jonah's that's my dog. collaborators that's- and friends, I think we are firmly in the Cosmo is America's dog camp. But now, Jonah, please continue. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I mean Jasper is a Hungarian you know, usurper. Um, uh, regardless – you know, it would sort of be better for us if it turns out that this is sort of a systemic scandal, a policy scandal that lets us make arguments about the size of government rather than arguments that, that are about Obama's criminality that are yeah. going to lead to impeachment nonsense and all that. Better to sort of put, put the system on trial, as it were. On the press thing, I'm torn. And I, I think the problem with John's question, um, despite how brilliant it is, is that it's the, the 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 analogy or the comparison that keeps coming to my mind isn't necessarily the Valerie Plame thing. It is 
uh, what Christopher Hitchens referred to as Ari Fleischer's reign of terror. <laughs> Remember when Ari Fleischer said, yeah. in response to an idiot congressman who talked about, um, be, said something bigoted about Sikhs in Louisiana, who have turbans on their heads, or as he put it, diapers on their heads, and something absolutely idiotic that Bill Maher said about how the 9-11 terrorists were braver than Americans. Um, and all Ari Fleischer said off the cuff was, People should probably watch what they say these days. And you can go back and look in Nexus at the things that people like Frank Rich said about this. Frank Rich said that that comment was culturally, will be remembered as culturally more significant than 9-11 itself. And he would constantly refer back to it as if this was the day that changed America when the government said people have to watch out for what they say. Now, if your response to those kinds of claims is anything other than bald-faced laughter and ridicule, then the idea that somehow using the friggin' Espionage Act against James Rosen, you know, which basically saying that, you know, James Rosen is an enemy of the state. <laughs> um, that's what the Espionage Act is all about, right? If, if you can't get worked up about that, then, but you thought that Frank Rich and all those jackwads were completely right about Ari Fleischer, then you're just an idiot. Right. All right, how about this? Uh, Obama is Liberace, and the press is Scott Thorson, the Matt Damon character. And of they course, are what wi- Rob is referring to. They are willing the- to get plastic surgery to look more like him. Is that better? Yeah, I except- think we need to explain I've been thinking what Bob about that is referring to is the smash HBO film Behind the Candelabra starring Michael Douglas as Liberace and Matt Damon as Scott Thorson featuring some of the most deeply uncomfortable and awkward sex scenes ever filmed in which two Speak for yourself. extremely, <laughs> extremely heterosexual actors attempted – to make it appear as though they had a smidgen it, of sexual interest. You didn't in like each it? Other. I, I thought it was pretty good. You didn't like it? I thought it was pretty no, good. No, no, I thought it was good. I just thought this the, the yeah, well, I just I, thought the sex scenes were a little I just thought uh, I for a minute that I, I wasn't sure. I thought that the, the Game of Thrones had gotten really weird. All right, all right, hold on, hold on. I, I want to hear both of your cases about why it was pretty good because I watched most of it. My wife, I made her I got her addicted to it and then I left and she watched all of it and she was so upset by it that she had to take a sleeping pill. Um, I I mean, look, I I, I thought, first of all, I thought Michael Douglas did a great job. Uh, He really did seem, I I also like the whole uh, atmosphere around it. I like the fact that Michael Douglas kind of, I mean, he knew Liberace. Like, that's actually, like, he was, he's a Hollywood kid who who met this guy. Um, I I like the fact that Debbie Reynolds was in it playing Liberace's mom, and she she was great. I mean, she only had like three scenes, but she was awesome in all of them. I also like the fact that we, I saw it on a screener. I saw a screener about, about uh, three, four weeks ago. And we was, I was working at the house with four other writers and, um, and, um, and my assistant, who um, is a young gay man. And, um, and we were obsessed with this. And we just work stopped. We got the screener and we played the, uh, the, the screener. And we were, we, all we did was watch the screener. And it kind of killed the whole day because we were just so into it. And he was totally bored by it. So th- there you go. Uh, I thought it was funny, and, and I thought it was interesting. It was a little – I thought Matt Damon's character was a little hard to follow. I thought they kind of elided over some of the more gruesome details of the story because they wanted to make 
they wanted to make a love story, and they knew that there were certain things that if they kind of revealed, would uh, the a contemporary audience would just kind of turn off. Like, like the the Matt Damon character in real life was extremely young. Um, really, kind of. I, I I don't know whether he was actionably legally actionably young, but certainly he was actionably young. He was seventeen years old, and Damon is thirty seven. So, well, no, I mean, I mean, in, yeah, it's in, a little in, like Carol yeah. Channing playing, you know, Hello Dolly when she was seventy five <laughs> and wearing Depends diapers on stage. I mean, yeah. well, it's a little, yeah, a little out of out of. But phase he is without sin, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I, it was, it was, it was. I mean, Steven Soderbergh did a great job. I, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, uh, but I'm, 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 I'm a. I'm, I'm an easy mark for that stuff. Yeah, I just thought it was I thought it was uh, beautifully done and beautifully sort of made, and uh, and it, it got at both the sort of ludicrously touching aspects and the more the darker, more repellent aspects of this kind of uh, you know mentor mentee relationship that is really just an act of blatant solipsistic narcissism. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I, I hear you. Um, <laughs> but all right. And, and, and look. And, and, and this isn't sort. Of, I mean, like, I'm tempted to quote Homer Simpson here about how you know I like my beer cold, my TV loud, and my homosexuals flaming. Um, but this was <laughs> well. Then congratulations. Cause... I know. Then this should have been the show of the year. But um, uh, first of all, I listened to a big chunk of the Fresh Air interview with with uh, Soderbergh and. He kept talking about how there were all these funny scenes in it, and I gotta say, I, I, I thought it was too verite to be funny. That the that with with a few small exceptions, it was just it it was incredibly uncomfortable making. And I don't mean this like in a homophobic sense. I mean, although uh, Matt Damon on top of Michael Douglas is something I don't need to see again. Um, oh, come but, on, that was all of like. Like three seconds, five seconds. Not when but you anyway, watch I, it, watch I mean, it over and over and over again, like I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have it on a GIF, right? <laughs> well, you know, one thing about uh, Liberace, uh, listening to his music and watching movies about him, is that is that you are reminded of the power and glory of books. So this leads me to point out that this show is brought to you by Audible.com. <laughs> Why not just the, mention that Liberace's oh. name shares it, some vowels with the word books? It's, it's, it's the first, first three words of library. <laughs> Audible.com is the home for audio content on the internet. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it with over 100,000 titles in virtually every genre. You'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audiblepodcast.com slash glop, G-L-O-P. Now, I do think that uh, popular culture needs to take a backseat for a couple of minutes to the fact that last week uh, Barack Obama declared an end to the war on terror and nobody really seemed to notice. Um, he gave a speech at the National Defense University in which he said this, this war, like all wars, must end. And if it doesn't, we will destroy our democracy and we will kill our children and we will eat our young and we will, we will live in a, a barricaded fortress forever. Um, 
and uh, the speech was, I think, quite extraordinary and quite overlooked in in some ways, largely because he he used it in part to uh, defend the use of drones, which has become the sort of go-to issue now for uh, the sort of uh, anti-war left uh, and some aspects of the anti-war isolationist right. Um, But it does seem extraordinary that the President of the United States should unilaterally announce that basically the war on terror is over because we have al-Qaeda on the run only seven months after al-Qaeda killed, uh, you know, staged an assault that ended up with the death of the the first killing of a U.S. ambassador um, on, on foreign soil in 33 years. Uh, and just as we're in the middle of discussing what exactly happened in Benghazi and why, and he basically is saying, well, al-Qaeda really isn't much, it's, it's, it's a threat, but it's less of a threat, it's more a homegrown threat, it's little, it's not as big, it's not as powerful, it's not as organized, we have them on the run, all of that, some of which may or may not be true, um, but uh, it does not, it seemed very odd. Um, and I'm not quite sure why he did it, and I'm not quite sure what the consequences of it or what the policy consequences of it are, except, of course, to ensure that we lose in Afghanistan when we pull out. Because if he's going to announce that we're just – the war on terror is over and we won and we're leaving Afghanistan, he is basically leaving the field clear for the Taliban, at least emotionally. Anybody uh, have a response? Yeah, but I agree with that. I, mean, I wrote a column about this. I – I thought that aspect of it was one of the more, sort of one of the more juvenile, you know, pieces of foreign policy, uh, you know, imaginable. Where he basically just says, "We want this to be over, so it's over." As if, you know, as 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 the Marine General General Mattis, you know, said, "The enemy gets a vote," and simply declaring that the war on terror is over um, doesn't mean the terrorist war on us is over. I mean, you know, I'm sure every Everybody who's ever been on the winning side of a war is, would have been eager right. at one point or another to say, OK, it's over. We win. Um, but the losing side gets – the other side gets a vote. It's sort of like the, the gazelle saying to the lion, OK, you caught me, but, you know, that's it now. <laughs> yeah. Um, it just – you know, and there's, some, there's a certain kind of unreality to it. And um, I, I hate – I mean I know that he was working on all this policy stuff beforehand. And I hate seeing everything through the sort of beltway lens of scandal stuff. But it did have at least at the margins the feel like he was just trying to change the national conversation and give his base a re, uh, you know a shot in the arm. Um, the the substance of it you know was very very odd. I mean I, it was I can't remember the last time American president in response to a pressing national security threat basically held a seminar that was full of on the one hand on and on the other hand stuff. Um, it was. I, I thought, in some ways, it was kind of pathetic in that way. But you know, you thought it was pathetic, and of course, this is one of the things uh, that will light a you know a liberal commentator up. Look, it's so flavored. It's Niburian. It's like Reinhold Niebuhr. I mean, what do you do that tilts over? What are we losing when we're gaining? What are we gaining if we have, if we're losing? And, our civil liberties and right, blah blah right. blah blah blah. My, the thing that really got to me was that he talked about closing Guantanamo Bay and what is going on in Guantanamo Bay now, once again, as though he has not been president for four and a half years. He said, look, there are all these people in Guantanamo Bay. They're being forcibly fed. 
what He's kind dead. of a country have we become? Right. Well, we're, we're, we're all you do suits. is right. pick up the phone and say, stop force feeding them, and they will no longer be force fed. That prison is run solely at his discretion as the commander in chief. It has no other statutory reason for being. It has no authority. It has no, there is no governing authority but him at the prison. He can do anything with that right. prison. He could have done it on January 24th, 2009. So it is a very strange thing for him to be talking about this as though he is not president. But it is his rhetorical M.O. to distance yeah. himself from acts of government that he himself is participating in if the reason that he is participating in them is that he couldn't quite figure out how to change policy without hurting himself politically. Well, yeah, and, and, that, and that argument is so internalized in him and so internalized in his acolytes on the left that they, they almost don't even notice it anymore. They're like, well, he can't do that because then he'll be, you know, well, he can't say that because then he'll be unpopular. As if that is itself <laughs> a political or philosophical argument. It's very strange. What was, was well, the weirdest thing about the speech was not so much, I mean, I would get, the, the timing it was strange. I mean, I think Joan is correct that it's 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 hard. The reason it's hard not to look at it politically is because it was political and politically timed. But what was odd about it was that you, I guess, you could make that argument if you said, "Look, uh, uh, the big heavy government, the big heavy uh, um, armed forces work is basically over. Afghanistan's a mess. It's going to be a mess. We're pretty much done." Okay, like you can make an argument there. Um, it, we are now moving to a different phase and are fighting the war on terror, uh, and it's going to be – it's essentially surveillance and security and uh, uh, elaborate police – capital P, elaborate police action, right? Um, and you could make that argument if you hadn't just spectacularly failed to do so on, on multiple levels in April in Boston. When five people died and 280 people or 280 plus people were injured in a bomb that was the direct result of the failure of all sorts of these sort of every single thing that the left has been saying for years. Like this really is more of a police issue. It's really more of an immigration issue. It's really more of a surveillance issue. Well, fine. But you failed at that. So the idea that now, okay, well, we're going to pull our troops out of Afghanistan because it's no longer about projecting American power. It's about defending the homeland and being more secure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, that, that has been – you can't point to any successes there. So it's a very strange argument to make and the very strange timing to choose. Well, it's funny. Uh, just two quick points. One is um, I think it's, you know, in some ways the, more, the most overlooked in terms of its uh, – the, the meat of it, uh, of anything that's come up recently, was where it was essentially leaked that Obama tells people that if he had his druthers, he would go full Bullworth. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it sort of gets at all of this. Obama has convinced himself that he is playing a part as president, and it's not the real him. Right. And he talks about it as if he's playing a part. And I have a friend who worked in the Bush White House who one of his biggest complaints about Obama is that what Obama likes about the job is the trappings of the job, of being able to call famous jazz players to come to the White House and perform for him, and then he gets to go up and sing a little bit too. And... Um, and this pose sort of fits so well in with the whole ideological approach to it, as, as John will attest, um, our ancestors on the, on the Russian shtetl used to have this attitude towards the government, which was, if only the czar knew, <laughs> right? If, if only the czar knew about the, the, the pogroms and the Cossacks who were, you know, killing our chickens and doing terrible things, 
he would put a stop to this. And Obama has cultivated this thing with the left and with the media that anything that bad happens can't be, can't involve him. And he has figured out a way to sort of rhetorically nurture that interpretation of things. It reminds me, if you ever read a biography or a history of Woodrow Wilson, it is amazing. The second things start going bad in this country, the Palmer raids and the political prisoners, Wilson mm-hmm. disappears from the story. And it's, that's been that, what Obama's been able to do for five years, is that whenever something's bad happening, he disappears from the story. And he, 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 he's brilliant at cultivating that impression. I mean, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's a remarkably convenient thing. And I, I think one of the reasons that the speech did not resonate as much as he wished it to was precisely that that act is running dry. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. So half of the speech is dedicated to what was actually um, the, the correct case, in my view, on the use of unmanned aircraft, these half-intelligence, half-weapons, these drones. Um, and then he said that he wished to uh, work with Congress to end the authorization for the use of military force that was passed on September 13th, uh, 2011, um, because that's how the war on terror will end. The sole right that he has to use drone warcraft is contained in the authorization for the use of military <laughs> force. So if it is repealed, the president no longer has a legal, has legal standing to use a drone. So, uh, that's really quite extraordinary. Even though he said, I want to limit it, I want to mm-hmm. make sure we are not going to use these drones unless there is no chance that there will ever be a civilian casualty, which is, of course, A, impossible, and B, crazy, because the whole point about drones, as Kenneth Anderson explains in a really remarkable article in the June issue of Commentary, which you can read on our website at commentarymagazine.com, is that drones represent the largest advance in the reduction of so-called collateral damage in the history of warfare. You use a drone, the number of people that are killed in the course of a military action who have no connection to the military action is infinitesimal compared to conventional military, uh, conventional military assault. Right. Well, it's so, also, but it's also a huge subsidy to the human shield industry, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're telling all of these terrorists, as long as you set up your headquarters on the top floor or the basement of a school, or you keep your, these large extended families around you, since we're pledged to have no uh, civilian casualties, means you can never be hit by a drone. Well, but of course, that's the, that's, that's the interesting, that's where the advance of the drone is, because... These drones, one of the things that they do is they, they collect intelligence, which means they fly over somebody's house for weeks and months to gain appropriate signatures of who everybody is. And then at a place and time of their choosing, they will then attack the, you know, the target. Right. So um, this has never happened before where you have intelligence and we- the intelligence and the weapon are the same thing and that you can use one without the other ordinarily you know you get the intelligence then you shoot the bullet you know as soon you know with no gap in time um or you know whatever gap in time there is hurts you whereas in this case it only helps you because you can then isolate on the person 
you know, you're, you're, you're actually targeting. So I'm not even sure that that's, that's the case. But even if it were, he can't use them without the authorization for the use of military force, which gives the United States the legal right to strike at stateless actors in the war on terror. You know, absent a you know formal sovereignty issue with somebody or others country, so so it was I think a pretty uh, remarkable failure, you know, both of rhetoric and policy and and politics because he clearly failed to change the subject. Speaking of changing the subject from the <laughs> from the ridiculous is this question: uh, If Liberace the Star Trek had a drone. <laughs> The Star Trek movie, should it be hit by a drone? Do we like it? Do we want it to be hit by a drone? Can we can we now stipulate that there are going to be spoilers? So anyone who hasn't seen it, we're now I going to have spoilers. Uh, well, then you better put your fingers in your ears. No, I'm not. Because we can't talk about it without the spoilers. It's already – it's pre-spoiled. I'm, I'm not you – know, I'm, not, I'm not one of those. Okay. I, I, so, I assume that Joan has seen it. I have seen it. And I have seen it. Oh, good. So, Jonah. Yes. How many Quatloos for <laughs> oh, sure. Star God. Trek in the Darkness? Oh, my God. Um, how many Quatloos what? How many Quatloos would you pay <laughs> for a Blu-ray of Star Trek Into Darkness? Uh, not that many. But, um, I, look, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Not great, but good, entertaining. Um. I think that some of the criticism from some of my friends um, that somehow the first J.J. Abrams reboot was great and the second one wasn't is ludicrous. I'm um, I'm so, yeah, I mean, like, yes, there were plot holes in Star Trek Into Darkness. There are also enormous plot holes into the first Abrams reboot. And, plot and I, I, Star Trek film? I, I, I <laughs> I thought I'm, I'm, I'm stunned. <laughs> I thought it was I'm just going to sit in the corner here and make noise. Go ahead. Um, and uh, you know, I, I worry. I worry more because, frankly, I worry more about what Abrams is going to do to Star Wars um, than what he's done to Star Trek. But we'll, we'll see. Well, aren't they all going to converge at one point? I mean, how do you do? How do you keep them all straight? He's a very, very, very talented guy. Uh, uh, you know, I don't. He's not a friend of mine. I've met him a bunch of times. Nice guy, very smart, very very personable guy, very witty. Everything. I mean, and he's immensely talented. But I don't know how you keep it all straight. Uh, like you go and well, Rob's like, going to show up with a thing, every, and and uh, Spock's going to be in the Wookiee machine. I don't every, get it. Every Star Wars movie begins with the phrase "a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away." The entire Star Trek universe has taken place in a single galaxy in the future so if you actually had star trek and star wars meet it would require throwing out the fundament of both universes yeah. in a way right. that Ooh, because you could never come Cal up with a, because you could never come up with a little <laughs> machine oh we found a little hole to tear in the thing that you guy can find captain kirk from the past <laughs> oh come on give me a break listen give me a break listen because it's all worked Trek. out so perfectly. Gene Roddenberry, for your information, lived in the Pacific Palisades. The, I got reason, the reason that Star Trek Into Darkness, the second J.J., is a, is a good movie, quite like Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, on which it is largely a gloss, though it's, that is a much better movie than this, 
is that it is an episode. It is a cinematic version of a television episode. Yes. Um, and it tells a, it tells a story the way a, a one hour television episode tells a story. Yeah, you it ain't sets selling. up a character. They have to deal with the character and close the character out. That is how all good Star Trek episodes worked. The Star <laughs> Wars is a Star Wars is just a gigantic piece of well, you know mythology. Yeah, well, you know, here's inter- if I could chase something again. So this, I mean, uh, in in my this now bring it back to my favorite subject, which is me and, and my uh, and my career uh, and my, my business and my, my rice bowl. Too. That's good. Um, so a, a couple data points. That, uh, since we're talking about pop culture, a couple couple things have happened in the past six months that are very interesting, and and bode well for media, but well for people who believe in freedom, and well for people on sort of on our side of the aisle in general, uh, and very poorly for big media and legacy media. One of them is the gr- great big movement towards uh, a la carte pricing, great big movement towards disruption in what what you get. Your cable companies forcing you to buy a lot of crap, and then eventually uh, they have to put crap on those channels, and eventually we get things like you know storage. Wars, which is this there because we got a channel. If you have to buy each channel individually, you're going to be a little bit more specific about what you want. Um, Netflix, Amazon, um, all sorts of new channels, all sorts of new choices. That's all very, very good. Uh, Netflix released last weekend Arrested Development. Uh, it was a cult uh, sitcom on Fox. It ran, it had a tiny little following, a very, very passionate following, but it never quite caught fire enough to be on broadcast. But it is a perfect choice for Netflix because it, it, it's got a devoted following. It will bring people to Netflix. Very, very smart. I didn't see it. I, I, uh, I, I wasn't a passionate fan of the show when it was on. Um, did very well for Netflix. But what I heard, what I loved was the comment I heard from somebody who did like the show and got all the Netflix, downloaded all the Netflix episodes and watched them all. Uh, and he said, oh, my God. They phantom menaced Arrested Development. Well, I didn't like Arrested Development. I didn't like Arrested Development, and I, and, I, and I didn't watch the Netflix version. And I have a feeling that maybe what happened is that people have caught up to me and now understand that Arrested Development isn't very good. It was simply, a, uh, it was simply an effort to write a family sitcom that told jokes as close to in the manner of the Simpsons or an animated show as you could get. And the jokes actually weren't very good. There were just a lot of them. And so it went like that. That's my attitude. But I think more important than Netflix and more important than Amazon and more important than Alcott pricing is this fascinating experiment that is causing the most hysterical reaction on the part of you know broadcast titans, which is this um, thing called Aereo that yeah, yeah, uh, Barry yeah. Diller started, which essentially allows you to watch local television on the computer. And according to what uh, – basically by simply capturing – it's like, it's like a um, rabbit ear antenna that you hook your computer to – and you can therefore watch everything on your computer. Right. And you know, to hear Les Moonves of CBS tell it, to hear Rupert Murdoch tell it, to hear all these people tell it, this is the end of everything. <laughs> yeah. This is the death of media. This is the they will go pay cable. They will right. that's it. There will be no over the air broadcast any longer. Did, did I did I I can't remember. Did I tell my my Webster story last week? 
No, but okay. any Webster story is a valuable All right, this is, this is a true story. Years ago, TV show on the air called Webster. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're, you need to tell us this. Well, I don't need to tell you this. I'm just telling it for, the, for, for listeners who are under 50. Um, <laughs> Webster, classic uh, sort of early 80s sitcom, tiny little uh, black kid. Um, it turns out, of course, like, like many uh, African-American like st- stars had a, some kind of kidney problem, made him tiny and cute, uh, adopted by a rich white family. Um, and then that's, you know, that's what it is, right? That's the show. See, I uh, don't see people in color, so I didn't catch any of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. You don't see, you don't see that. Like, that's, uh, oh, really? Was that what that was? Uh, you just saw a family uh, sharing. Uh, yeah. Oh, right, right. Um, like that doctor's family in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, you know, and the show was on for, for a bunch of years and, and was doing all right. But no one, you know, it was on, right? And the studio, uh, it was a Paramount show. And... Um, uh, and one day uh, they assigned a, a new young um, a network executive, current what they used to call the current comedy executive, current program executive to that show. And the current uh, executive for the network would show up at the table readings and the run-throughs and the, um, and, and the shoots and kind of give notes and supervise and just kind of like get, get nose around and all that stuff. And the, it's job of the studio to kind of edge that who the studio has, pays for everything, produces it, and, and they, they kind of they butt heads and edge it out and they protect the showrunner and the writers and stuff. So – uh, one day she shows up at a table reading for, for, for Webster, and it's the first time anyone showed up for the network for, for, for you know, a couple of years, right? No one bothered with it. It's just this thing that's going. And she's sitting there, and kind of everybody kind of panics a little bit, and they call up the studio chairman, and they say, hey, there's somebody here from the network. So he sort of puts down his scotch and his cigar, and he sort of you know, golf carts over there and walks in kind of ready-faced in a suit. And this guy, I know him well. He was the first studio mogul. I, he gave me my first deals. Great, great guy. And uh, they, have the, they have the table reading of the script for Webster, um, and at the end of it, this young executive says, um, you know, I have, I have some notes. I have some thoughts. And the, the studio president says, let me stop you right there. We think it works. And then she says, timidly but with some courage, says, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it works, but you know, we, you know, we, we could make it, you know, we could work on it. We wanted to make a, we want to make a really good Webster. And he says, let me stop you right there. <laughs> we don't make good Websters. <laughs> we don't make bad Websters. We just make Websters. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the attitude back then, right? That was the whole attitude of the TV business back then. It doesn't have to be good. It just has to be on because there's only three channels and you're going to watch one of them. It's Ford, Chrysler, GM. But see, now with all this competition and Arrow and all that stuff, the damnedest thing is for everybody in this business is you've got to make good Websters. It's terrible. Right. Well, you know, there is nothing better than a good Webster. I will tell you, one day <laughs> on a plane, one day on a plane, I was sitting on a plane ride and the, ep- and the TV episode that came up on the free thing – was this show, one of these shows that runs for 10 years and nobody watches and nobody knows, but it gets 200 episodes, Yes, Dear. Yes, Dear, which was on CBS literally, I think, for eight years, and no one ever watched it, but it was on for eight years, just like there was a show that just finished running right. called Rules of Engagement that was on for seven years. Yeah, I know we watched no it, ever- it was funny. So, yes, dear, which I had seen a little bit. You know, it's like a, there's a they're rich, uh, there's a well-to-do family and their sister. And then they 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 the the less well-to-do part lives in the guest house next door or something. 
And so there's this episode, and the episode is about how each one of these four adults, at some point or other, uh, that one of their seven-year-old kids is is having trouble in school, and each of them flashes back to a moment when that kid was a baby, when they dropped the kid on his head. And they <laughs> dropped the kid on his head, and they never told anybody. Else. One fell right. off the changing table. Right. Right. One fell off the couch. Right. One fell. And right. it was hilariously funny. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a real – no one's given this a chance. People – you know, it got a reputation and you should – so I started watching it and I watched six episodes, one more awful than the next. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, there – so one day, one week, something happened, you know. Right. They, well, it's they always took something. a drug yeah. or they stopped taking the drug and they made one – Funny episode. Well, and uh, otherwise, yes. it's just yes, dear. It's not yes. the good yes, dear. It's not the bad yes, dear. We just make yes, dear. There, uh, there was some funny. There's some other funny stuff in that show. I, I, I'll, I'll just let me. I'll tell two stories, and then I can. I'll, I'll be done with stories. One is a friend of mine was working on a show years ago, starring Gene Wilder, who, of course, is, there are very few people funnier than Gene Wilder. But for some reason, the show didn't work. I don't know what it was. Just, you know, sometimes things don't work. Everybody writing the show is very talented. Gene Wilder is one of the funniest people ever. And the show itself, maybe there was, and we couldn't figure, he couldn't, I was working on it. He couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. And ultimately, what turned out was wrong with it was there's just too much writing. There was just too much work. There was too many things for, for, for Gene Wilder to say and do. Too much story. Too many he said. Too many notes. Uh, really, too many notes. He said there was one run through one episode that was perfect. It was Gene Wilder played a recent widower, um, uh, not recent, a couple years a widower who uh, was a dentist who was shy, uh, whose kids were older, uh, you know, gone to college and were worried about him and said, you know, this is, it's enough now, Dad. You got to, like, you got to get out there. You got to have a, a social life. And uh, no, anyway, he had young, no, I'm sorry, he had, he had young children. And he had uh, friends who said, you know, and he was obsessing with them all the time and wouldn't leave the house and was like always, you know, too, too into his kids. And his adult friend said, look, you got to be with adults a little bit. You've got to come out. We're having a dinner party. You're coming. There's a woman here we want you to meet. Uh, you, but you've got to be adult now. You, you need adult time. And um, he promised to do it. And they, he came to the dinner party. And they, of course, they were empty nesters. He was an older dad. They were empty nesters. They had this beautiful apartment with this beautiful white sofa. And he came to the apartment and he's meeting this woman for the first time. He's a little nervous and she's in the kitchen and he realizes that he said goodbye to his kids and they were eating chocolate and he put the chocolate bars in his po- blazer pocket and now they were uh, – they, they, and, he, and he realized they were in his pocket and he put his hands in his pocket and now his hands had, were stained with chocolate and he, and he had put handprints on the white sofa. And there was apparently an 11-minute sequence of Gene Wilder trying desperately to cover up the handprints on the sofa – while putting more handprints on the sofa. So in 11 minutes, a white sofa, what we would say is an MOS scene, right? Uh, without sound, became completely covered in chocolatey handprints. And I, people who were there said it was the funniest 11 minutes you've ever seen in your life. And for some reason, it didn't work on film. But it was uh, – people said they thought that this, this is an 11-minute – See, classic sequence. Gene Wilder, ne- never been nothing. Gene Wilder's done has been f- as funny as this. This is the best thing I've ever seen anybody do. He was exhausted at the end, but it was funny. It was perfect. It just didn't work. So sometimes things don't work. The show didn't work. That sequence didn't ultimately work. But something that Peter Tolan said, who's a great writer, said, um, "Look," he said, "You know how you get a hit TV show on the air by accident." 
That's that's what you're hoping for here, an accident. And I think that's that's the way it is. Well, um, don't you wish you could see that scene with Gene Wilder and the and the chocolate I hands? reviewed I, I reviewed that show in my brief tenure as a television critic, yeah. and the only thing I remember about it was that it had a very inventive title, which was something Wilder, which actually yeah. is a good title if you think about it. It's way of using his name, you, uh, cliche, mm-hmm. all of that. It was originally um, Eligible Dentist was the original name of it. Also a good title. That's what, but, that's what I would but say. that sequence people tell – people who saw that run through say you, you felt like you had seen something. You see the chocolate factory kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, even better. Like even better. You saw a guy do something extraordinary that in the theater would have been legendary. This reminds me of, uh, for no particular good reason. In fact, it doesn't remind me of it at all. Uh, okay. I'm just nice, nice changing segue. the subject um, of the uh, world's greatest celebrity interview uh, this week in New York Magazine, um, but with uh, Will uh, Smith and, and Jaden Smith, uh, stars of uh, the uh, soon to open or just opened uh, Another Earth, uh, a movie that apparently is. So bad that uh, even its uh, not very good now over the hill director M Night Shyamalan Ding Dong doesn't want his name associated with it. But if you read this um, interview, uh, you learn among other things that um, because Will Smith likes to watch TED talks on the internet, <laughs> he believes that quote uh, at heart. I'm a physicist, uh, unquote, because he's really searching for, quote, the theory of everything, unquote. Uh, at, and, at heart, and Jayden, a, by the way, at heart, is I'm a cardiologist because I'm really searching for ways to eat more butter and fat and get away with it. But go ahead. Jayden, by the way, is included uh, in this um, – uh, physics in the in the in the fraternity of physicists, uh, not just by the power of primogeniture, but also uh, simply because he uh, is also interested in planets um, and gravity, oh, interesting. and uh, and and other things. And it reminds me of the fact that really, I just don't think that celebrities should ever be interviewed. Either they should be be, and they should be at length so that we get the full horror of what it is to be the sort of person who has nothing to say and thinks nothing but has 25 people around them who are paid to say, that's very interesting. Oh, yeah, that's great. That is really you. You have have it. You're in. You're very very spiritual. Say more about that. Yeah. (laughs) or they should never speak. They should never speak. It doesn't it, – it, it ruins their brand. It makes them look stupid. Who thinks that this is interesting? Never speak is, uh, is almost never the wrong choice. You know, it's, it's funny because the wrong choice. one of the great sorrows of the, of the last year for me was the decision by Ashley Judd not to run for Senate in Kentucky yeah. Yeah. because Ashley Judd – when she first came up as a as an actress in the late 80s pre-internet so 
I'm talking now about interviews in magazines like Movie Line and uh, Premiere, things that don't exist and probably aren't even you know available electronically. So uh, opposition researchers would actually have to go to the library and Xerox them. Um, <laughs> Not going to happen. You know, very difficult. Uh, Ashley Judd was easily the single most ludicrously pretentious, uh, pompous, uh, preposterous actressy person I had ever read, ever. I had ever read. And this idea that this person, granted it was you know 15 years ago or 20 right. years ago, so it wasn't so, but that this person was going to spend an, a year and a half running for office going to town halls with open mics and being interviewed by reporters, the gems that would have come out of her mouth, the glories of her response to things, the... Well, they're the, just not... Yeah, they're not used to follow-up questions. They're not used to anybody ever saying, wait, what? It's all just some morning show person saying, <laughs> Ashley, you're so wonderful. So why did you choose this project? <laughs> like, is, is Morgan Freeman fun? Doesn't, don't you think he should be president for real? <laughs> Speaking of Morgan Freeman, yeah. I mean, that's all I do. Freeman and and celebrity interviews. There was, of course, a great moment this week, which everyone should now go to the, you know, open a window if they're listening. Open a window on the computer and go find this on YouTube, where he is doing one of these endless rounds of interviews, talking about the movie, also opening called um, I don't know. Now you see me, and he's sitting there next to his co-star. And uh, we'll link Michael to it uh, at, at Ricochet. And he falls asleep. He literally yeah. – Michael Caine is sitting there and Freeman <laughs> falls asleep next to him. You know, well, yeah, fair I mean, enough. He's a 77-year-old man. He's married to his step-granddaughter, so he's probably pretty tired. But also and, it's like it's uh, probably nine – you know, uh, six in the morning wherever he is. He probably done 19,000 of these that morning. Yeah, it's I amazing mean, yeah, that like, they can do it. I mean, you know, he's really married to a step-granddaughter? I believe he's married to a step granddaughter. Yes, there's uh, an let me, issue. Let me just, uh, let me just there, look that up. For there's you. an issue. There was an issue. It's uh, it, it sounds a lot so- more sorted than it is. I uh, yeah, I'm sure it's not sorted at all. Uh, you know, there's no. He's a lovely no, man. He's a lovely man. I have no I doubt, and I I really enjoy him. Uh, uh, he's, uh, I, you know, he's always the president. But what I, I guess what I mean about, the, about these guys, uh, the, 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 but my favorite moment was actually uh, was something that was in print and nobody seemed to notice it when she said it. Was, and she was not a celebrity at the time. She was just just a, a fellow writer, showrunner, Diane English, who was uh, the uh, creator of uh, sitcom Murphy Brown years and years and years ago. And well, she was in the attacked me in the L.A. Times. But she really well, she was in the L.A. Well, Times calendar section years ago yeah. um, and said about how smart she was trying to be smart and saying, you know, we don't even have cable. I mean, that's, that's how much we hate TV in my house. We don't even have cable. And then later on in the, in the article, she said, you know, we don't even watch TV, okay? I mean, all we watch is CNN. <laughs> like, honey, there's only one way to get CNN, baby. You got to watch the cable. You got to get it. You know, <laughs> like, you get Cartoon Network, too. I wasn't on there then. But, like, you, <laughs> but at no point did, did anybody say, um, you know, should we change that? Because you look stupid. Instead, they just left it in, and nobody challenged it at the time because these people are not used to being challenged. It's just not a normal thing. And when they go on the uh, on the hustings, as it were, they just it just is it, it's a shock. You can see it in their face. What what well, did you just funny. say? Uh, I, I think John has seen it. This movie, Oblivion, with Tom Cruise. Oh yes, yeah. And so yeah, it's a movie. So John's seen it. Yeah, and, and like you know, I, ever since someone reviewed The Last Samurai. Which was 
really one of the greater hate crimes against history to begin with. <laughs> Basically, uh, I, I remember reading the review, and it's all about how Tom Cruise plays a American Civil War officer who goes off to search for himself in Japan and ends up saving the Japanese from something or other and the tokenology. From themselves, because they yeah. need a white guy to save them. <laughs> yeah. From and, and some reviewer, maybe it was John, I can't remember, but some reviewer pointed out that Tom Cruise is literally in every frame of the movie. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure that's absolutely true, but it's really close to it. And it's just all close-ups of Tom Cruise. And if you go, and if you have that in mind, you watch Oblivion, um, every scene is, it reminded me of like, there was an episode of Friends where Susan Sarandon is teaching Joey how to kiss for soap operas. And the, she says, my trick is I always put my hands on my, uh, on my, uh, the person I'm kissing's face <laughs> because that way it'll cover their face <laughs> yeah, and I get, right. the, I get all the shots. Right, you know, right. And the Tom, this, Tom, this Tom Cruise movie, every single scene, it's just, <laughs> it's just him filling the frigging camera. And, it's, it, and he's always putting his hands over the person he kisses face, so he's always in the thing. And it, was, it, was all, it had already reached parody. And I'm going to give a spoiler for everybody, so run from the room. It turns out that Tom Cruise, okay, you yeah. get everyone out, out, okay. Tom Cruise is a clone. And when, the moment you discover this, you realize... Of course, this is how they sold this movie to Tom Cruise, because it was going to be just more Tom Cruise than you could handle. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it turns out that Tom Cruise, at the end of the movie, when he saves planet Earth, he goes into this giant space pyramid thing, and it is literally billions of Tom Cruises, as far as the eye can see. Oh, but it's not just that. You're forgetting the best part, which is that he has a five-minute fight scene with himself. That's right. That's right. Right, right. In the sands of a desert, Tom Cruise punches Tom Cruise, and then Tom Cruise punches him back, and they roll around, and they hit each other, and they hit him. They... It was the cinematic version of the Iran-Iraq War. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah. But it's it's but you can see how like in Hollywood like if you have your team is meeting with somebody else and it's a discussion point how much f- screen time will Tom Cruise have and you actually have to pad it with an army of clones in order to get yes. enough yeah, well, Tom Cruise in there you know? yeah well you, but, you know you, I yes. read an interview with yeah. Tom Hanks so somebody said to Tom Hanks why did you want to make Charlie Wilson's War, this movie that he made with Mike Nichols and, and Julia Roberts. And he said, well, I wanted to make it because it's right there. Char- I would be playing Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson's name is in the, is in the credit. <laughs> Charlie Wilson's War. I'm Charlie yeah. Wilson. Then he made and wrote and directed this absolutely horrendous movie that he wrote and directed that he starred in called Larry Crown, in which he oh, plays oh, Larry yeah. Crown. And now he's about to make a movie. He's just made a movie that comes out in the fall about the 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 captain of the ship that the Somali pirates uh, kidnapped by the Somali pirates into Captain Phillips. So you're saying he wants airtime, and Tom Cruise wants to have his character's name right. be the title of the movie. Yes. So if you so friends, now, now, Roman, if you want yes, to yes. get Tom Cruise, you yes put his name. On the title page, you occasionally it is occasionally done um, by some people <laughs> to put the name of the character, 
that you the, the person that you want to do it, certainly in an ensemble what you often do that if the character if the title of the, of the piece is fungible meaning you can kind of call it anything you want and you are, you're going for somebody and you want and and it's not quite of a star it's not quite a star role in terms of page you know tonnage you often do uh, change the title and that does often <laughs> do the do the trick um Yes, that is often what you do, or you rearrange it so that you know if you're going for somebody, you really and you're, you're sending it to a star, you want the star to do the do the project. You you sometimes rearrange the opening so that the first two pages they read, first three pages they read, um, uh, they're in. Uh, that helps. And, and uh, you're laughing. I, I have done. I have cynical. done this. I have done. I'm sure you have. <laughs> I have done this recently because Rob, at heart, you're a physicist. <laughs> at, heart, at heart, you're a physicist, and you know we. I think we've now we've now gone on for about 18 hours. So I think perhaps it is time for us to bring it to a close. Glop culture, the world's most rambling podcast. But we talked about began, showbiz, which I like. I think this is better because there's so much. We politics. began politics. with two minutes on the letter W, and we're ending with. Five minutes on the first two pages of a would-be script for Tom Hanks. So I think we have done our job here. And we're covered in caramel. And now, of course, and we're covered in caramel. Now, of course, it is time for the obligatory Jonah Goldberg will be speaking at Aloysius Canisius St. <laughs> Francis of Assisi College in Maryland. Uh, Jonah, where will you be? In, um, in, actually, in I don't think I, I don't think I have anything open to the public for a little while. Um, not until the, I think the Western Conservative Summit in Colorado in July. But uh, you know, things change, so I'll let you know. But I appreciate I appreciate the thought. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and Rob, what about you? I'm I'm here working. I got uh, s- uh, six more episodes to shoot between now and the uh, middle of uh, end of July. And then I take a little break, and then um, I got to shoot a little project. I might be shooting a little project uh, in your neck of the woods there, John. I might be back in New York um, sometime in August, maybe early September, shooting a project. I can't talk about right now, but will probably be announced uh, this week. Um, and I hope it will be more than one. Maybe it will even be 12. Exciting. And I actually, on Sunday, June 9th, will be – uh, at Temple Bethel in Northbrook, Illinois, uh, Bill Crystal and I will be uh, jointly delivering the Richard Schoenstatt Memorial Lecture talking about the Middle East and commentary and various other things. Um, if, you, if you do a search on my name and June 9th uh, on Google and uh, Northbrook, Illinois, this will come up and you can register for the event. If you oh, my God. You're, I just did it. And, you, and you're, you're serious. You really are doing it. I am. This is not. And wow. of course, I will be at Chuckles. You weren't just in lying West for attention, Nyack, New York. But aside, that's the fake event. The real event is June 9th, <laughs> Temple Bethel in Northbrook, Illinois. The Richard Schoenstatt Memorial Lecture. Google my name and June 9th and Northbrook, Illinois, and there you will find information leading to the possibility of you having a wonderful time attending this lecture. So. Um, Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Perhaps the next time uh, we get together, uh, one or another of us will have either been audited or had yeah. our had our phone records. Uh, Until then, our gentlemen, knowledge. let's only make good Websters. <laughs> Thank you. Keep I, hope alive. <laughs> See you, fellas.
Have you ever noticed, ladies and gentlemen, that every generation has had a particular kind of music they considered all their very own? You know, like now it's rock and roll. Well, when I was a teenager, we had a kind of a crazy thing going for us, too. I wonder how many of you remember the boogie-woogie craze. again so you can all shout hey okay ricochet join the conversation you want to do it again don't you the ladies doing it all by themselves, okay? Okay. 